Okay, so, so throughout history, fires have led to drastic changes in the population, the patterns, and the infrastructure of, of nations, and the course of world events. There are many fires, in fact, that changed history. Seven that history records is great. For instance, the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria. It contained the knowledge of the ancient world at that time, estimated at over a half a million scrolls from Assyria, Greece, Persia, Egypt, and India. And people from all over that world at that time would come there to study and to work. Then there was the Great Fire of London in 1666, which burned about a quarter of the people's homes, leaving 100,000 people homeless at that time. In America, we see the Detroit Fire in 1805. We see the Chicago Fire in 1871, the New York City Fire of 1885. And you know, we could spend our whole session this morning just talking about fires and the destruction they cause. <clears throat> but I want to jump back now in history to the time of Peter and the apostles after the ascension of Christ into heaven when the, when the gospel started to spread like a wildfire. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter's sermon, it says in verse 41 that about 3,000 people came to Christ that day alone, and there were many coming to faith every day. But persecution was becoming greater and greater for Christians. In A.D. 64, the city of Rome burned, and the citizens of Rome actually believed that Nero burned that city in order to build a bigger and a better one. And so he destroyed everything that the people had. Everything they cherished was gone. Many were homeless. Many died. And the resentment towards him was very bitter. And so in order to save his empire, he had to redirect the Romans' hostility away from himself. And he did so by blaming Christians who were already hated because of the association that they had with the Jews. And they were seen then as hostile even to Roman culture. And so when Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fires, a vicious, vicious persecution arose. It spread throughout the entire empire. In A.D. 70, right on target with Jesus' admonition, that Titus destroyed and he burnt Jerusalem. So Peter's writing this letter from Rome, codenamed Babylon, near the end of his life. As MacArthur says, Peter does not want this letter to be found in Rome and having the church further persecuted. And so he codenames it Babylon, the location of his writing, which was really because of the city's idolatry, and it really seems fitting when you think about it. You know, the believers now everywhere are suffering persecution. And so Peter is writing to teach them how to live victoriously. Even in the midst of this hostility, as they are scattered, they're victims, they're, they're called pilgrims, aliens, as he addresses them in the letter in verse 1. And Peter wants to teach them, and he wants to teach us this morning, how to live without losing hope, without becoming bitter, to trust in their Lord Jesus Christ while all the time looking for His return. And that even while they're under distress, a Christian can still evangelize, even while being exposed to a world system that is energized by Satan and the demonic demons. And so we pick up his letter this morning 
beginning in verse 13, and we'll conclude the chapter in verse, 20, uh, verse 25. But I want to begin once more by going to the Lord in prayer. So would you bow with me in prayer? And Father, as we open up your word for us this morning, we are reminded that it's you. It's you who gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness, which is found in your word. And so please, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to follow and to obey what your will is for each of us as we walk through this world by faith, not by sight, as we await your return to take all of your children home to the place that you have made for us, your bride, the church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So if you'd open up your Bibles with me, and let's begin to read then our passage together, beginning in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 13. As Peter pins the word, God breathed words given to him to instruct all of us as believers. In verses 13 through 17, he says to them and to us, therefore. Now, what's that word in there, therefore? Because of what you have previously learned. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also, yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If or whenever you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. So let's address then how Peter tells us what God says we are to do about living in a polluted world. And he begins by telling us what that should look like in response to our salvation, how we are to live. In these first four verses, Peter, we, he doesn't waste any time. And he starts out by how we are to live in regard to ourselves. What, what's that look like? Well, it looks like we are to be disciplined. Prepare our minds for action. And that means we are to be disciplined in our thinking. I like what the King James translation says for this verse. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare for, be ready for any trials that come your way in this life. In other words, as James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And remember, this may seem hard for us as believers in Jesus Christ, but if you are a believer, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, you, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He says in verse 13, you need to prepare your minds for action. And we do that by keeping sober in spirit. Sober in spirit means to be spiritually minded, steadfast, self-controlled. It means we are to reject the ways of the world and instead focus on Christ, His Word, and fixing our hope then in the promises of grace and the eternal life that we have for our future, which Jesus has promised us in John 14, 1 through 7. Now, if you were to do a uh, search for the promises of God to those who believe, 
you'll find over 30 promises made by Jesus alone. And I want to share this morning with you just six of them, because all the promises of God for His children are in Christ Jesus. He confirms them, He secures them, He purchases them for all of us who believe in Him. As Galatians 3, 21 through 29 says, He declares that we as believers are heirs. We are heirs according to the promise. You know, Jesus made some very important promises. So let's look at six of them this morning. The first was the reason actually that Jesus came as the God-man, fully man and yet fully God, to provide the promise of salvation. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it tells us why He came. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs of eternal life. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In John 6, 37, He says, the one who comes to him will not, he will not cast out. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, For this reason, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, there are many more verses that we could share regarding this promises. But in these four verses alone, he shares the promise of salvation. Christ is clearly saying that as a believer in him, that He gives us new life. He saves us from an eternity in hell. Romans 8, 34 through 39 tells us that when we are in the hands of God, that nothing can separate us from Him. When you and I have the gift of salvation, we can never lose it. The second promise I want to look at is this, that we can be sure of is the gift of serving. You know, when Christ calls you and me to do something, he already knows, doesn't he? He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your age. He knows what you are capable of or what you're not capable of. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit grants spiritual gifts according to His will, according to how He has chosen to use the believer to minister to other believers. Every believer has been granted a gift or gifts, plural. Often, though, we are very hard on ourselves. We try to prevent the full blessings of God from being revealed by saying, you know what, I don't think I can do this. I I'm not good enough. I I'm just not smart enough to do this. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says in chapter Matthew 4, 19, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He does not say, follow me, and I will assign to you tasks that you think your knowledge is capable of handling. Huh. 
No. Christ is clearly promising that if we would just follow Him, He will do the work in us. He will transform us into disciples who are usable. We may feel inadequate, but remember that our Lord has promised to make us fishers of men. He will lead the transformation. All we have to do is follow. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In John chapter 12, verse 26, it says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The third promise for us from Jesus as our helper is to give us guidance. Let me ask you, have you ever become distracted and you just make sometimes make the wrong decisions? <laughs> yeah, we all have, haven't we? Of course, because of our sinful flesh. And it fights against us every step of the way, every day. We need guidance. We need help. But the answer is in the Scriptures. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He will restore my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. In Psalm 48, verse 14, it says, For such is God, our Lord God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. In the parable of the wise men, or the, not the wise men, the parable of the foolish and the wise builders. Remember in that parable, uh, the guys are building their, their houses on one built on the sand and one built on the rock. Remember that? And Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 and 47, as he's teaching them, to, as is his disciples, about this, he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. You remember the end of that parable, what happened? When the storm came, what happened to the one on the sand? It was destroyed, wasn't it? The one on the rock, it stood firm. It was solid. That's a picture for us, folks. To stand firm, prepare our minds for any storm, any trial in this life. As we keep looking to the future, our great hope is in Christ. He will guide us. He will help us understand His will. Guidance, then, comes from being close to Jesus through His Word and our obedience and prayer because He longs for us to know Him, to have a close relationship with Him. And when we are close to Him, then we're going to make right decisions and it's going to take us in the right direction which will bring honor and praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the fourth promise then I want to look at is that of rest and renewal. Do you ever get tired? you ever just want to say, I can't go on. I can't do this anymore. You just want, I just need a rest. Well, a life of a Christian is full of blessings, but it's not always easy, is it? I think we can all attest to that. It's not easy. But Jesus deals with that also. He says to the sinner in Matthew 11, verse 28, He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Those are powerful, powerful words for even for an old believer like myself. It's one of the greatest promises, I believe, that you and I can receive here on earth because we are never alone. Christ says he will never leave us or forsake us. When we are tired, we can rest in him. When we feel as if we can't go on any longer, he reassures us through his word. When our walk with him sees blah and it's empty and we can still be renewed through the Christ and his word. And he can set us on fire again like when we first became a believer. And when the end of our life is near, we can be assured that he will take us through the valley of the shadow of death and lead us to new life with him forever. The writer of Lamentations in chapter 3, verses 21 to 23 says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, in other words, his steadfast love, indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The fifth promise then is that of the Holy Spirit, where we find the promise of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 verse 16 when jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to leave them he says and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever so jesus is speaking to his disciples about why he must go away and he was reassuring them that even though he's going to go away physically they will not be alone the holy spirit will come and it will be a counselor to them you know as christians we receive the Holy Spirit when? At the moment. The moment we receive Christ alone by faith alone. The Holy Spirit then convicts us of sin. He guides us. He comforts us. He gives us understanding of His Word. He inspires us. He empowers us to accomplish God's will. You know, Christ didn't return to the Father and just leave us as orphans trying to find our way through this dark world. No, He returned to the Father and He gifted us with the Holy Spirit so that we can continue our work of building His kingdom. The sixth promise is that of eternal life. I want to ask you this morning, think, you don't have to answer me, but just think about it. How many times do you think about heaven and the place where God has for you? And if we're really honest, it's probably not very often. Instead, we become consumed with this earthly life and our success and our investing our money so that we can live comfortably. As parents, we make wills so that our children are taken care of when we're gone. We even can make weekly and monthly plans and we make lists, <laughs> which my dear wife loves. And she's always trying to get me to make one <laughs> for the next day's activities. And all of our planning, all of our making a list, they're good. But many times our plans fail, don't they? But God has a plan and a promise from His Son that will never fail. In John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Jesus says, saying to them, I will come back. We have that promise. He's preparing a place for us. And when it's ready, 
And when the Father gives the okay, <laughs> we're going to be with Him in that place forever. See, our future settled. It's settled if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We will see Jesus again. We will spend forever more worshiping Him because we have our hope completely on the promises and on the grace of God, knowing that we have a home that's being prepared by Him and that He will come for us. So we need to gird up our minds we need to reject this world by preparing our minds, by focusing on the future that we have through the grace of God. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition... To all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so as verse 13 says, we need to rest our hope fully upon the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, in light of our salvation, there is still one future thing for us. And that is, in light of our salvation, there's a future ministry of Christ, and that's our glorification. That's the final culmination of grace. And so he tells us to rest our hope fully upon Jesus Christ when he returns for his bride, the church. That's what our great hope is, isn't it? To be with him. Christ is not just making general promises to us as children. He's making Himself known to us as His children, declaring that when we follow Him, we will never be alone. We will always have His love and His guidance. He desires to use us, to give us rest when we need it. And we are promised then the full blessings of God, as Jesus said in His high priestly prayer in John 17. Let's continue then as Jesus instructs us how to live in regard to our Savior. He says we are to be holy before God in verses 14 through 16. But how is that possible? Well, it's possible because holiness is essentially defined as our new nature and our conduct in light of our previous lifestyle. The Greek word used for holy is hagios, which means pure, morally blameless or set apart, as in set apart for holy use. That's what you and I are called to be. We're set apart for God to serve Him, to bring honor and praise to Him. In Ephesians chapter 2, it actually gives us the details. How we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, in His mercy and grace, made us alive with Christ. And He raised us up with Him in the heavenly places. Why would He do that? Well, it's so. it says, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So it is all by His grace, and we are His workmanship. And so as a Christian, then, we are to be striving for this holiness, to have a relationship with God that is defined, how? By our obedience to His will, and it's being shaped, then, through sanctification, to have His character 
As 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification, to be growing. It's not just external. It begins with the intents of our heart and the motivations and the attitudes that reflect God. God's Word then commands us to live a life above reproach and in such a way that reflects the moral perfection and the purity of Christ in our lives. See, Christ cannot have fellowship with those who abide in sin. You may be a Christian. That doesn't mean you lose salvation if you're in sin. You can lose your fellowship, though, but never your relationship with Christ if you are a true believer. But to sin continually living in sin means you're choosing then to live a life outside of a relationship with Christ and I can't even imagine what that would look like when Christ when you stand before Christ Peter tells us that we are to be reverent towards God in verse 17 he says if you can address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth now fear in Greek is commonly used in Scripture. <laughs> it's commonly used, according to Strong, sometimes positively in relation to God, but more often negatively in, in, in the fact that we withdraw from God. We flee from. We remove oneself. We hence uh, to, to avoid God because of fear or dread or fright. But it can also be used as an adjective to the word semnos. Used as an adjective, it means to have a deep respect, uh, uh, to revere, to have an awe, which is what it's referring to in verse 17. Have an awe of who our God is and what He has done for you. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about those things. As for the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Believers, we're not to indulge in the cravings of our flesh. The lust, the anger, the greed, the laziness, the selfishness. Because if or since you address as Father, which is another way of saying you're a Christian if you address him like that. You know that he's going to judge each one's work fairly. So that you and I need to respect, we need to obey him in all of our endeavors in this world, seeking to honor him. And how do we do that? By wisely and joyfully seeking to be holy. Seeking to put to death any remaining sin in our lives. In Romans 8 verse 13 it says, For if you are living according to the flesh you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's speaking here of believers who are striving with the help of the Holy Spirit to understand, to obey, to conform their lives, to conform their obedience to His Word, to the character of Christ. As Romans 8.29 says, we all know this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal, folks, if you're a believer in Christ. Paul is saying that it's the Holy Spirit in us that provides the energy, the power, to continually be putting to death our sins. And this is a process that's not a one-time deal. It's never over until we die. Continually we need to be doing that. The Holy Spirit leads us, and it accomplishes this through our faithful obedience to the Scripture. And so in light of Peter's admonition to be holy, 2 Peter 3.11 addresses this by asking us, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? You could translate that verse or that phrase in lives of holiness and godliness. What kind of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness? In light of Jesus, is who he is, and the reality that he is coming again, so what sort of men and women should we be? That's the question. Well, that we should be holy men and women. We should be temptation-defying men and women. We should be mortifying sin, men and women, not being self-righteous, but be humble men and women who long to live like Christ, putting off and putting on the character of a new person in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22-24 says, You were taught, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. We also read that in second in Colossians rather chapter 3 verses 2 through 14. So ask yourself what does the way I live say about Christ in my life? What does the way I live say about Jesus in my life? And so for an application of verses 13 to 17, I want to leave with you four things that can, we all can improve on. And the first is this. Prepare for action. That means we must be disciplined in our study of God's Word. Second, fix our hope completely on the future revelation of Jesus Christ. He is coming for you. Maybe sooner, maybe today, but He is coming. Be steadfast, spiritually sober-minded, self-controlled, and disciplined. And fourth, anticipate that second coming, that it might be today. Well, let's continue reading then in verses 18 to 21 regarding the cost of our salvation. He says in verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So let's examine then the cost of our salvation. And it begins with the price, but I will first want to look at the negative side of living without Christ. Salvation wasn't purchased with silver and gold, which we just read, because it's perishable. You can own it all. You can have all the riches of the world. 
but you can't take it with you. And even if you could, it would not help you. There will be nothing for you without Christ after you die, but a future judgment. Because without Christ as your Lord, it means then that you have died in your sins. And now you will be required to pay for your sins, not with silver and gold, but with eternal life in torment in a lake of fire called the second death. Because that is what you have earned as your wages. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. As Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 through 15 goes on to tell us, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. How? According to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. Every one of them. How? According to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. See this is what you can expect as an unbeliever along with the devil and all those who were deceived. As Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow, not a pretty picture what awaits for an unbeliever. Well, we've looked at the negative side of life without Christ as Lord. Let's look now then at the positive side of living with Christ, having Christ as your Lord. Because our salvation was bought. It was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Salvation itself is not free. It costs the life and the blood of our Lord. The price paid to rescue us from the wrath of God. It was the shed blood of His only Son. It was by His grace, as it says in Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You know, before you were saved, uh, your life and my life, it was empty. It was meaningless, as we saw in verse 18. And by our futile way of life, but, but now, as you're saved by the precious blood of Jesus and by faith in Christ, our lives should be full. They should be happy through Him, through Christ. And it just didn't happen by chance, folks. It was the plan of a triune God. Let's look closer then at the planning. In verses 20 to 21, as Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world to do this, as Scripture says, it was foreordained. And so our salvation was not purchased with money, we've just looked at. It took the blood of Christ, the spotless lamb of God. And His death was planned by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, before the foundation of the world was ever formed. But ages before you and I were ever born. And yet God, in His grace, included you and I, included us all in His plan. And it was accomplished through Him, through Christ, who has appeared for us. Romans 4.24 says, 
but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Folks, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you can do that this morning. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if you will confess Jesus with your mouth as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, the person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. The term in these last times in verse 20 is referring to the time from Jesus' birth to his second coming, and it's all for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead, it says. And that's actually the outcome of all three persons in the Trinity. You can read that in Romans 4, Galatians 1, that it was God. And then in John 2:19 and 10:18, we see that Jesus has the authority to raise himself from the dead. And we also see then the Holy Spirit was involved in 1 Peter 3:18, Romans 1, 4, and 8, 11. And so the result is that the entire work of a triune God, our God, involved in saving you and me who gave him glory that's speaking of God the Father at the ascension of Christ when he went back and returned to the glory that he had before creation so that our faith and our hope now are in God let's continue then as we continue to explore the vehicle then of our salvation in verses 22 to 25 it says since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for I some fear love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And he concludes then by saying this, and this is the word which was preached to you. And so the vehicle of our salvation, the first part of verse 20 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, it's speaking of our new birth. A new birth, that means you've experienced regeneration by hearing, by through faith, by hearing the word of God. In other words, you're that person that is speaking of in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creation. In Titus 3, 3-7, it tells us every one of us, before our salvation, was characterized how? By sinful actions, by ungodliness. But according to His mercy, He bestowed upon us a divine cleansing from our sin. How? Through Christ. He gave us the gift then of a new life that is spirit-generated, spirit-empowered, spirit-protected life as an adopted child of God. And one that is promised eternal life and heir of his kingdom. All by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus declares in John 11 verses 25 and 26. Remember, this is at the time when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Mary's questioning him. And he says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
Oh, when you read these passages, how grateful you and I should be, how thankful we should be that in that plan the Father chose those that the Son would give His life for and by the work of the Holy Spirit call those to repentance in faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That He paid the price of our redemption by nailing that certificate of debt, our sins, against us on His cross, shedding His own blood to purchase you and me. Because as it says in Hebrews 9:11, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so He's able to promise us eternal life. He gives us a new life, a new creature, a new nature in Christ, so that as we surrender our lives to Him, as 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20 speaks of, we are not our own. We've been bought. And we've been bought with a price. Because of that, it says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, 11, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through his spirit who dwells in you. In verse 22, it says, Since you are a believer, that you should also then have a fervent love for one another. And you're to do that with a pure heart. Fervently means to stretch it to the limits. It means that this kind of love exhibits itself by meeting the needs of others, as many of you do. And it's done with a sincere, a loving heart. That of a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Master, your Savior. As Peter says in chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus himself says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In verses 23b through 25, it tells us that this is accomplished for each of us. How? Through God's Word. The very book that's sitting on your table or on your iPads. <laughs> that's how it's accomplished. It, it, as Romans 1.16, where Paul says again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So Peter is telling us that God's word then is not of corruptible seed of the flesh or like the grass and the flower which withers and dies. But God's word is imperishable, permanent, unfailing. It's living, it's active, it's enduring forever. It's used in us by the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, and then, in fact, as He's using us through the Holy Spirit, what does it do? It produces fruit in our lives. So that just like our faith that was given to us as a gift by the Holy Spirit, God's Word now is the vehicle to produce in us fruit. As Galatians 5, 16 through 26 tells us how we should walk, and the results then are seen in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In 2 Peter 1, 3, he explains for us that this book, our Bible, contains everything. There's nothing lacking. Everything that we need 
pertaining to life and godliness. Also in chapter 1, verse 24, we see that unlike the grass and the flower that withers away, the word of the Lord endures forever. As Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And so as we close this chapter this morning, Peter reminds us in verse 25, and this is the word that was preached to you. It's the word preached to you. So application for verses 18 through 25, in light of what we have studied, how should we live? How should we prepare our minds for action? Well, first, in all of our behavior, we need to strive to be holy because our Savior is holy. Second, we need to remember from where we once were and who we now are in Jesus Christ. We are a new creature. And then we need to be like newborn babies. We need to long for the pure milk of the word. And fourth and last, we need to love one another fervently from a redeemed heart, a pure heart. As always, when I close my lessons, I usually like to close with a song. And I'd like you for you to join me with an old familiar hymn. It was written by Joseph H. Gilmore in 1862. And the name of it is, He Leadeth Me. Would you stand with me? Let's join together in song. <clears throat> he leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, He leadeth me, by His own hand He leadeth me. His faithful follower I will be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's bowers bloom, by water still or trouble see, still tis the hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I will be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Lord, I would place my hand in thine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. Content, whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I will be, 
for by his hand he leadeth me. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory is won, in death's cold wave I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I will be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, the Son, the, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That before the foundation of the world, your compassion and your love for us knew that we would be sinners and that we would need a Savior. And that you planned for our redemption and that while we were yet sinners, you would have your Son condescend to become the only sinless man able to pay for our sins and impute your righteousness to us. We thank you for giving us a new life in Christ by giving us the gift of faith to be saved, by giving us the Spirit to dwell in us, to guide us, to convict us when we fail to obey and when we sin against you. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to honor and obey and to walk in a manner worthy of our being called your children. Strengthen us, Lord, through your word to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Lord, help us also to love one another with, from a pure heart, a redeemed heart. This is our prayer, Lord, this morning. We're come asking from the one whom all blessings flow from our Lord Jesus Christ. In him name we pray. Amen.